Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for another day to be kept alive by your grace. We know the reason we breathe, the reason our heart is pumping, everything about us, our thought pattern, our, our ability to speak and hear, all these things are from you and your grace as you're the giver of life. Father, we ask that you help us use uh, this night and our breath this evening to worship you, to glorify you, open our ears to hear, give us humility and faith. Father, most of all, we're thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, down to earth to become one of us, to truly humble himself so that he could take on the punishment for the entire world. Father, help us never be familiar with what you've done for us, totally by your sovereign grace. We ask that you bless this message, guide us by your Holy Spirit, and it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. What is repentance, and who gets to define it, part 8? We're going to start this evening with the same quote that Pastor Collins gave us on Sunday morning on the board from a gentleman named I.C. Herendine. He said, For salvation, repentance unto life is just as necessary as is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. No sinner was ever pardoned while he remained impenitent. I mean, just think about that. Why would God pardon a sinner that doesn't want the forgiveness? You know, it's the same analogy in life with us, right? Um, unless someone comes and asks you for forgiveness, you can't give it. So, again, the statement is, no sinner was ever pardoned while he remained impenitent, while he remained in rebellion against God and his authority, and without submitting himself wholeheartedly to his lordship. So we've been talking a lot about heart issues lately. Uh, God looks at the heart as we know. And he's simply waiting for a person who's ready and willing to bow down to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. It's really so simple. But it's very real. There's real substance to this thing called salvation. It takes a real decision. It involves a submission or a surrender turning from one's own methods, reliance on self, etc., and saying, okay, I'm done. I need you, Lord. I'm turning to you to save me. It's that thing, and God looks at the heart. It's that thing that he talks about here, submitting himself wholeheartedly to his lordship. And we know that God looks at the heart not only from David in the Old Testament. Um, that's, another, that's something that might be worth it for all, all of you to do. I've already done it in the, in the past and certainly would be great again, but find a concordance and just look up the word heart and go read all the verses in context about what the Bible says about the heart. And you see a lot more than just a couple of verses. But one tonight that the Spirit wants to bring out is in Acts chapter 15. So let's start in Acts 15 verse 7. And you might remember this, but um, certainly fits with the point on the board and, and our study. Acts 15, 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. In other words, their hearts were ready. Their hearts were in surrender mode, we might say. God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. 
and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So supernaturally, the heart of man is involved at the beginning of salvation and at the culmination. I mean, again, look at the verse in verse 8. It says, God knows the heart. So apparently God looked at the heart first, even though man's a sinner. He, lo- he was looking for something in the heart of man, even though man didn't have a new heart yet. Now, this is us trying to explain it also. How quickly does this happen for someone that truly surrenders? And it's enabled all by God anyway. But God is looking for a free will indication in the soul or in the heart of man of some type of surrender to him, some type of, um, I don't know if there's a better word than surrender, but a real submission, a real readiness to give up on self and to turn to him. So again, um, in verse 8, God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So supernaturally, the heart of man is involved in this decision, if you will, at the beginning of salvation and at at its culmination, at the culmination of salvation. In other words, even though man doesn't have a new heart yet, God is looking for a humble indication in the heart of man, a surrender of the free will that he can then take over. He can then totally act upon and do everything necessary to provide salvation. That's when God quickens the whole thing, as has been some language from Sunday. God quickens the whole thing, giving the man who is humble before the Lord a brand new heart, which is perfect in Christ. And again, this is us trying to explain supernatural things. And this is us sometimes trying to put an order on things logically so that we can comprehend it. But don't let that bind you. Don't let that um, hold you down from opening your mind to the fact that this is totally a supernatural thing that occurs that we can't fully explain. It's not going to happen. So while we're in Acts, let's be reminded also That saving faith is a surrender to Jesus as Lord, not just as Savior, as Mr. Herendine stated. Uh, Look at Acts 16.31. You see, if if believing in Jesus Christ is, is not in Him as Lord, but only as Savior, that's against the Scripture. And just look at Acts 16.31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So the Savior part is you'll be saved. But notice he's called the Lord Jesus. And if it's not the Lord Jesus, it's another Jesus. If someone thinks he's only a prophet or he's a good guy or, I don't know, he's a priest um, and that's it. And they don't recognize him as Lord. That's believing in another Jesus. And that's why this is so important even the point on the board. It's admitting and surrendering to who He is. He's the Almighty One in the flesh. So, Mr. Herendine goes on to say on the board, this involves the realization in his heart, wrought therein by the Holy Spirit, of the sinfulness of sin. Romans 7.13 Of the awfulness of ignoring the claims of God and of defying His authority. Some men that you talk to will say they have no sin. They'll say, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm a good person. I, I, don't, I don't really think I'm a sinner. I don't hurt anybody. How about those sins on the board, such as ignoring the claims of God or defying His authority? I mean, if God is God, that's a pretty big sin. So no matter how good you are, if you haven't been following Him, if you haven't been obeying His commands... You're defying his authority. So, how about the awfulness of ignoring the claims of God, as Mr. Aaron Dean states? That's a horrible sin in itself, denying one's creator, really. 
And on the board he goes on to say, Repentance is a holy horror and hatred of sin, a deep sorrow for it, a contrite acknowledgement of it before God, and a complete here forsaking of it. So we've had some reconciling of two seemingly opposing concepts the last couple of classes. And I put them on the board for us as they came out on Sunday, but I want you to see it. First, since we're commanded to repent, believe, and have faith, it is righteous to say that we are handed personal accountability to God on the topic of our own salvation. Right? If you're commanded to do these things, you're, you're accountable. You either can do them or not do them, but God's told you what needs to be done. All men are required to count the cost. Think of the word accountability on the board. To count the cost, to give an account for oneself, realizing they will answer to God one day for their own sin. And this is why unbelievers are justly sentenced to hell. All are given the chance to repent and turn to Christ to be saved. All are given a chance to account for themselves, but not they don't have to rely on themselves as the Lord is giving us the good news. Jesus says, rely on me instead of yourself. So again, these two things that we're uh, reconciling in our souls, the first one's on the board. We're commanded to repent, believe, and have faith. Uh, we do have a personal accountability to God for our decisions. However, on the board, we have also learned that it is by God's grace alone that we're even able to repent, believe, and have saving faith. So we have like a, you know, conundrum. It's like a brain scramble. How, do I, how does that reconcile? How do those two things coexist? And again, it's supernatural things we're talking about. It's only God who can awaken a person to their very need of salvation and deliverance from sin and death. Only God can awaken a person to their problem, to the depth of their sin, to the fact that they can't stand up to his righteous demands. Only God can do that. And thank God he promises to provide that. He promises to enable somebody who's willing because we can't even believe on our own. That's how lame we are. <laughs> Go to John six forty four. John 6.44. So God really understands who we are and our total inability uh, in of ourselves to do anything good. And in John 6.44, we've been seeing Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's quite a clear statement. That is a plainly stated doctrine by Jesus, the Lord. No one can come to me and be saved unless the Father draws him. So on the board, man cannot save himself, first of all, not in the slightest way. Man is born totally enslaved, unable to do anything for himself, particularly in saving himself. In fact, unless God elected him, he's never going to be saved. Now, you shouldn't have a problem with that because these things coexist. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. In other words, only God can awaken a dead person. You shouldn't get upset if you see unless God elects a person, he can't be saved. Guess what? God wants to elect everybody. He does. He wants to. We know that from Scripture. He wants all men to be saved. But he won't do it if someone's not willing. Because he knows in his brilliance that if he offers it to somebody and they're not ready, they're going to say the word no. They're going to resist. They're going to refuse. He knows who's never going to turn and say yes, right? So... It has to be from God, enabled by God. And unless God elects somebody, he's never going to be saved. Because only God can wake up a dead person. So we see, as clearly stated in Holy Scripture, 
It's the sovereignty of God that determines who is called and saved. He's the sovereign. He has all the rights. And God in His grace saves those who are humble, even though He doesn't have to. He wants to save everybody. The only ones He can save without violating free will are the humble. I was looking online at a church's website to check out their beliefs. It's a church that my brother David is considering calling home in Arizona. And uh, thank you for all the prayers for him, by the way. Um, but here's how they put this on their website regarding the Lord's role in salvation. Before creation, God chose those who would be saved and granted this unearned grace solely based on his sovereign good pleasure. This is the one, one of the sides of our things that we're reconciling, right? The sovereignty of God. And it's totally based on God's choice and good pleasure. Who is saved? And yet we have man's free will on the other side. But on the board, just look at, look at this and try to appreciate this. It's all about God, folks. It's 100% about Him, His ability, His willingness to save us. Before creation... God chose those who would be saved and granted this unearned grace solely based on his sovereign good pleasure. He's God. He can do what he wants. And no one has a right to challenge his wisdom. We're just fortunate he decides to take our free will or humility into account. And he does because he's love also. They also go on to mention on the website that repentance and faith are found in those whom God saves. But as we've discussed, this gives us a bit of a human conundrum, a difficulty to rationalize it, to make sense of it all. And that's why some people run away from God, because they want to know it all or forget it, you know. And that's an arrogant attitude that assumes, number one, they have the right to know it all. Number two, they have the ability to know it all. It's just foolishness instead of surrendering to an all-knowing and loving God. As we talked about on Sunday, an unbelieving person gets fits because of this discussion. A natural-minded man can't understand the things of God. So just think of the fact, for example, that repentance is commanded of man and is also granted by God. To the flesh, that doesn't make any sense. Repentance is commanded of man and is also granted by God. Remember our principle uh, last week, I think it was, God demands and solves. God demands and solves. This is the awesome God we have. He's just and righteous, and He's a loving provider of it all to those who will to turn to Him. We might also say God, God commands and provides, so man can fulfill His commands. We already saw in Acts 15 that God cleanses a man's heart by faith. And on the board, let's look at one more reminder of his gracious granting of repentance to the man who is in surrender mode, so to speak, will surrender his will. Acts 11:18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Notice we're talking about here repentance that leads to eternal life. This isn't just a repentance like a spiritual life issue. We're talking about salvation. And guess what? God grants it. Go to John 6.44 again. Is there you are now? Okay. John 6.44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Notice, coming to Jesus requires the humility of listening to the Father, who is also the Spirit. We won't get into that again, but if you don't listen to the Spirit of God convicting you about Jesus Christ, you can't come to Jesus Christ. If the Father doesn't draw you, you can't come to me, Jesus said. And we should accept that. In other words, dead man, you need the power of God to quicken you, to give you breath, spiritual life. And as the Lord often said in the Gospels, he who has an ear, let him hear. So on the board, we talked about this on Sunday, he who has an ear, God alone enables spiritual hearing. A man can hear Holy Scripture a hundred times and never get anything supernatural imparted to his account if God doesn't will it so. You shouldn't have a problem with that. In fact, you should feel good about that, that that's our God that we serve. That's the powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God that we serve. And He's gracious. And He's just waiting for you to, you know, give Him the green light. Humility. We see this in Mark 4.23 and Revelation 2.7. God alone enables spiritual hearing. Someone's not going to hear or understand the things of God without God's help. Why is that offensive in any way? It should be encouraging. Who does God will hearing to or for? The man with a willing heart, humble before him. And it's that simple. And yes, God wants all men to be saved, but he won't cast his pearls before swine, namely the arrogant. Jesus said this, right? Don't cast my pearls before swine. Who are the swine? What, why swine? What do swine stay in? Filth, right? Mud. They choose to stay in the mud of sin. They refuse to say, this is not good and I need your help, Lord. They refuse to turn from that to his cleansing. So God says, I can't do anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to violate the free will. I only give grace to the humble. So these two truths we're talking about coexist in their supernatural realities. So we need to stop rationalizing and just accept it with the faith of a child. It's way beyond us. We have to accept that this is way beyond us. It reminds me of uh, one of the Toby Mac songs, uh, Way Beyond Me, it's called. Way Beyond Me. The, the smarter you get in the Word of God, the more you should realize you don't know and that you don't fully understand. And the depths of God are unfathomable. We want to understand and control everything. God purposely says no. He's purposely designed life so that we can't understand everything and control everything. He says, my ways are not your ways. You'll have to trust me. It's that simple. And that's why the faith of a child is required. So as came up on Sunday also, God teaches truth and enables conversion. God teaches truth. He's perfectly fair and just. Whoever wants it, he'll teach. And he enables conversion to boot. So just dwell on that. We must conclude fully in our hearts that salvation is not of or from ourselves in any way. And this is where religion has really um, beaten us up spiritually. Religion has tried to convince us and still lingers in our soul. We all got a little religion in us, right? It still lingers in our soul. 
trying to tell the flesh it's good enough in certain areas, or trying to tell the flesh that it can have a part in salvation, a contribution, even if it's small. Where God says, you can't do anything of yourselves. Even faith you can't do. We are totally, completely, and utterly unable. It's like a dead person trying to lift his arm. It's foolishness, right? So that's us spiritually. Until we admit that, we're not going to be set free by the grace of God. Because we're going to be clinging to a little religion to have some kind of credit, when really it's a curse. We're bringing it upon ourselves. Salvation totally depends on the sovereign grace of God. As Pastor stated on Sunday, we probably all have a deeper appreciation now for the verse on the board in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In spite of all the demands God makes on man, God gives it all. Every single bit of power and energy and ability that man needs, God gives it all. Again, making a dead man come alive. That's how much salvation depends on God 100%. So we should all have a much greater appreciation in our souls for the grace of God now in salvation and a much bigger picture in our souls where you can step back and see the grand scheme of things and rest in that and be more, uh, more excited about your salvation because of God's sovereignty being involved. I've recently pondered in my own soul lately as, as you know, we've been growing in you know, this gospel reload really is really what we're still on and uh, the, the issue of repentance and how repentance relates to salvation and faith. And for me, it's been like working on a 5,000-piece puzzle. I don't know how many of you like doing puzzles. But if you've got a puzzle on the, on the table, and it takes you a long time, sometimes to even get the thing started, right? And you can work at it for a long time. And you get one or two pieces in two hours. And then as it starts coming together, what happens near the end? All the pieces start falling together in place, right? It's kind of like a domino effect. And to me, that's what God's been doing for us in this series, giving us the big picture, having the whole picture, being able to see it all in that puzzle, having it all fit together. And if you don't feel that way yet, or if you're on your way, just don't get discouraged. Um, you know, as a teacher, I have to even like study these things and I, I should be ahead, so to speak, of the game, you know, a little bit because I have to study them out and then teach everybody just like Pastor does. So it's like if you don't feel this yet or you're not, you're not seeing the big picture yet, relax, you know, stay humble, step back, and let God teach you, as Jesus said, right? So that's God's desire for us. And th this is where he's bringing us to freedom, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, when you understand that God's demand for perfect righteousness was fulfilled by the grace of God and the all-sufficient sacrifice of His Son, it's then that you repent and bow down in your soul to the holy, sovereign God of the universe, your Creator. And you humbly just cry out on the board, thank you. When you realize it, when you come to that point of surrender and realize your horribleness, the horribleness of sin that you're guilty for, of, and you realize that God offers you full and total forgiveness, and you repent and bow down like that to God in appreciation, all you can say is thank you. And I think that's a picture of what happens in a man's soul at salvation, at least to some degree. Like the sinner beating his breast before God, unwilling to even look up to heaven, just pleading for mercy. And when he realizes it, all he wants to say is, thank you. That's all you can say. 
because this is unfathomable what God's done for us. Again, it's way beyond us. And this gratitude leads you to being more repentant toward God each day, which is a beautiful thing to God. God loves humility. And that's where you're living in now, we might say, the sphere of gratitude. On the board regarding increasing gratitude, repentance actually leads us to gratitude. We give thanks when we realize how depraved we are and continue to be in the flesh. As God reveals more sin to us, we repent more, and we are that much more grateful, and so on. This is a treadmill that we should be on. I'm being sarcastic. We shouldn't be on any treadmill. But what I mean is like, this is like a flowing cycle of, of thought, of appreciation. You know, repentance and gratefulness, repentance and gratefulness. This is like the lifestyle he wants us to live in, a lifestyle of humility and gratitude and therefore love. So here's a principle we've seen a couple times now, but I thought it worth repeating on the board regarding understanding salvation. Just because we can theologically and even practically make distinctions between repentance and faith, they are eternally, intrinsically bound together. Again, remember we talked about before how we like to put things in order, some kind of logical sequence so we can, we can grasp it. And God does that for us in the Word. He, you know, he gives us things to grab onto so that we can get some of it, understand Him in some way. But these things are intrinsically bound together. These things are supernaturally bound together. There's a oneness to them. On the board, a whole person cannot exercise faith that delivers them while remaining unrepentant. And vice versa. A whole person cannot exercise repentance that delivers while remaining unfaithful. In other words, if you're really going to be delivered, you need both present in your heart, so to speak. I mean, just dwell on that point on the board. These spiritual truths are bound together like one spiritual reality. Repentance of, and, and faith are really one system of thinking. Uh, you can't have one without the other, truly. I really believe in my heart now, as we've been studying this topic and seeing more and more, God's gently showing us, but I really believe someone cannot come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what it really means to believe in Him, unless they have a repentant attitude first. Otherwise, it's a pseudo-faith. What's the difference in the Bible between a person that is saved and a person that's not saved but claims to have faith? What's the difference in the Bible between saving faith and spurious faith? Faith that that apparently didn't save, like the demons, for example. Or we're going to see in a minute, the end of John chapter 6. Some of Jesus' disciples walked away. And Jesus knew they never believed. So what's the difference between a disciple that stays, a disciple that really is saved by faith, and a quote-unquote disciple that's not saved, even though they claim that faith? What's the difference? Heart issues, a surrender of the will. It's not, a, it's not just a mental consent. It's not just a, a do-it-just-in-case thing. I don't think you can have repentance and faith without you know, them, them being together. You can't, can't have one without the other. Repentance is really the difference, a repentant attitude, heart towards God about your sin. I was thinking, what's one of the greatest days of conversions of men to Christ? How about in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 souls came to Christ in one day, when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2? What did Peter preach? He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 souls were saved that day. 
What does that tell you? Then I was thinking about the land of Nineveh, a city of 120,000 heathens that were against God and God's people that Jonah finally went to. We know that story. And what did Jonah preach? You know what it is. God, you can say it. it's okay. Repentance, right? He preached repentance. And 120,000 people got saved. They repented in dust and ashes. Faith, true faith, saving faith, doesn't come without repentance or an attitude of repentance. Whether the word is used or not is not even the issue. If someone's not willing to admit their, their sin against God and willing, you know, want to turn from it, a desire, a willingness to turn from it, they can't receive saving faith. It's going to be missing despite claims by some people. On the board, people won't honestly turn to Christ unless there is a repentance in their heart towards God for their sin. So much so, this was the Apostle Paul's habitual way of preaching the gospel. Acts 20.21 We're not going to go there because we've been to this verse many times. And you should know this one by now. Paul says, both Jews and Gentiles... I preached repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same man who wrote the letters, the epistles in the New Testament, who taught justification by faith alone. Is there a contradiction? If we're justified by faith alone, why did Paul preach repentance and faith to everybody? Because they're intrinsically bound. True faith has repentance in it. Again, people won't honestly turn to Christ unless there is a repentance in their heart towards God for their sin. So much so that this was the Apostle Paul's habitual way of preaching the gospel. Now again, this doesn't mean we have to run around telling everybody to repent. Okay? It may apply at times. Listen to the Spirit. But at times, people are already repentant and humble like the uh, Roman soldier, the Roman guard, the jailer, in Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. Why was it so simple? Why wasn't repentance mentioned? The guy was humble. The guy was on his knees about to kill himself. I'd say he was repentant. He had humility, at least. And Paul said, here's the good news. So it doesn't mean we have to go around, you know, yelling repent to everybody. But... It is a part of true faith. There's no way around it. We saw on Sunday some quotes from a man who had a good way of putting it. Charles Spurgeon. He says, I learned from the scriptures that repentance is just as necessary to salvation as faith is. And the faith that has not repentance going with it will have to be repented of. An interesting way to put it. So understanding deliverance, because a man's heart is affected by God's grace, and though he must repent and have faith, only a whole person is able to function in either, and therefore intrinsically both at any given point in time, where the end result is salvation and deliverance. In other words, a repentant heart is a faithful one. And a faithful heart is a repentant one. But again, someone must be willing to listen. And only the willing person is enabled by God to hear the call. Go to John 10.25. John 10.25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
But notice again in verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. That's the evidence. So God enables hearing in those who are humble, who are willing to actually listen. Think about it. Think about in real life, everyday life. Only a humble person will understand something new. If you're telling somebody something new that they've never heard before, they might, you know, initially want to question it even, right? Maybe be on the defensive. Only a humble person is going to understand something new. Someone who's arrogant blocks it out. Says, I already know everything. I don't need to hear that. So even though they hear it, they don't hear it. They don't really listen. They don't want to listen. There's the willingness again. Only a humble person will understand something new. An arrogant person has their ears closed. Not literally, but because they close their minds to something new, they aren't able to receive it or understand it. They could be brilliant, super intelligent, but if they're arrogant, they close their ears. Really, we might say close their minds, right? I'm not open to learning something new. That's not, I'm not familiar with that. I'm not willing to accept that. They're not humble, so they're not going to understand something like the gospel. God, knowing the heart of man, enables the humble to hear the things of God and actually understand them, if a man's willing. It's supernatural, again, and the willing man is going to be given faith. Romans 10:17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This came out on Sunday as well, stated a bit differently. So much has to be accomplished by God, yet the unmistakable truth is that we individuals are held personally responsible if we refuse His grace. What more could God possibly do without violating man's free will then offer the free gift of eternal life. And this is where repentance comes in. A willingness to turn from oneself and one's own solutions. Someone has an idea in their heart that they can save themselves. So they're not willing to turn from that. Not truly. They might take Jesus on the side just in case, but they're not truly willing to turn from that. So this is where repentance comes in. The pattern is pretty simple. And even a child can do it because God enables it. It's simply an attitude of surrender to God. So regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is looking for the will of man, which intrinsically involves the whole person. A person must be given to in order to be quickened to. But God can't give to them unless they're willing. It should make sense. It's not rocket science. It's actually really simple. And again, think of being quickened as God supernaturally brings two foreign things together. A holy God and a wretched sinner that have no business being together, that God has no business with us at all. And when God sees the willing heart, he gives them repentance and faith, and he somehow brings it together. Somehow. That gap is, is impossible for man. Totally impossible for man. But that's the grace of God. He's just, he's just waiting to give it. He's just waiting to give. But man must uh, be willing. So once God sees the green light of humility in one's soul and his willingness to turn to Christ, then whoosh, brings it all together. On the board, Charles Spurgeon also said, It is God that chooses his people. He calls them by his grace. He quickens them by his spirit. And he keeps them by his power. Let's review a few scriptures 
from Spurgeon or his comments on a few scriptures that we saw on Sunday. Uh, go to Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17. We'll do a quick, re- quick review of these. Not going to get very far. Sheesh. You guys don't mind if I go an extra 20 minutes or so? Is that okay? Ah, just kidding. All right. So Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. On the board, Charles Spurgeon said, He, Jesus, was not afraid to give an earnest exhortation to sinners and to bid men repent. He knew better than we do the inability of men. Now think about that. He knew better than we do the inability of men concerning all that is good, and yet he bade them repent. Even though he knew, he knew the total inability of man to do anything good, he still told them to repent. What does that tell you? It has to be God-enabled. As we saw earlier, repentance is granted by God to the humble. Go to uh, Mark 1.14, where Jesus also says repent. Mark 1.14. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. On the board, Mr. Spurgeon says, It is clear from this passage that our Lord exhorted men to repent and to believe the gospel. There are some who profess to be his followers who will not suffer us to do this. In other words, there's some so-called fellow Christians that don't want us to do this. That don't think this is right, the right way. He goes on to say, we may teach men and warn them, they say, but we must not exhort them to repent and believe. Well, as the contention of these people is not in accordance with the Scriptures, we are content to follow the Scriptures and to do as Jesus did. So we shall say to sinners, repent ye and believe the gospel. I like that phrase, we're content to follow the Scriptures. We can't care what people say, folks. Even people that we like or love, that are believers. We can't care what they say. We must follow the Scriptures. And we must be content in our hearts. In other words, having your own convictions. And not worry about other people's opinions. If you think you are in the right place where God wants you in this church, under Pastor Collins, for example, if you think that God has been teaching you wonderful things and is opening up the big picture to you and making it even more simple, then if you're convicted, you're on the right path, you need to stick with your convictions. You need to not be bothered by those who tell you a better way or something shouldn't be done a certain way. You need to be content to follow the scriptures and what you're convicted of. The Great Commission is to preach the truth about the gospel and make disciples along the way. It's not to water down the message to make man comfortable. In fact, that's just going to deceive man into thinking he doesn't have to make a real decision for Christ. I think of times I've done that in the past, and I cringe. And it just, it hurts. But God can work all things together for good for those that love Him. And there's a step-by-step you know, process in everyone's conversion. But it's a real decision God calls us to make. The other thing that came out on Sunday is that we must preach Jesus' own words. Just think about this. It seems crazy to think why we wouldn't preach His own words. But because of religion and hyper-doctrinalization, we, some of us, have been trapped in the past of situation of almost excluding his words as a priority. But meanwhile, on the board, 
Holy Scripture says that He, His person, the person of Jesus, has the words of eternal life. There's nobody else that has the words of eternal life. Do you see the point? There's nobody else that has the words of eternal life. From the horse's mouth, from the founder and the creator. And we <laughs> put them on the back burner as not the priority in learning what salvation is all about. Crazy. Turn to John 6.63 as we begin to close. John 6.63. Again, Holy Scripture says He, His person, the person of Jesus, has the words of eternal life. So why wouldn't we go straight to His words as the founder of eternal life? And by the way, no one cut to the chase like our Lord, right? Nobody cut to the chase like Him. He cut through all the fat. He's like, here's the message, and it might hurt, but it's the truth. And I'm going to give it to you, honestly. John 6.63 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted him by the Father. As a result of this, many of his, his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. we should preach the same words that Jesus preached. The one who created, so to speak, the one who gave the initial gospel, the one who, only one who has the words of eternal life. Go to Matthew 16, 25 on that note. Matthew 16, 25. Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Why don't we tell people that? It's part of the gospel. In other words, it's a real decision. It's not a religious decision. It's a real decision. Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. If you hold on to your own life and you won't give up on it, trying to build your own little kingdom... You're going to lose it one day, eternally. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus said, is going to find it. Why don't we tell people that? And then you could tell them, hey, your life sucks anyway. <laughs> Why are you holding on to it? Come on, admit it. You put on a good face, but life's tough, isn't it? How many times have you failed? Do you really want to try that again? Even though you failed at it 20 times? And it's hurt you 20 times? What did J. Vernon McGee say? about this verse. The person who will not assume the risks involved in becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will, in the long run, lose his life eternally. There's a counting of the cost. There's a real counting of the cost. Am I going to be accountable for my own sin before God? Or shall I count those to Jesus? But it takes a real turning. It takes a real choice to <laughs> turn from one to the other. And that's what is being said here in Jesus' own words in Matthew 16, 25. And then we'll uh, close with A.W. Pink here. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. Now, what does that tell you? 
if somebody has no desire to be turned from their carnal carnality and worldliness, they have no desire to be turned from what God hates. Just think about that. So if somebody wants to be saved from the lake of fire, of course, who, would, who wouldn't want to be saved from the lake of fire, but is unwilling to turn from sin, that means they're unwilling to turn from what God hates. So their heart is not willing to agree with God's heart on what's good and what's evil. They're unwilling. This was what we might call the free ticket to heaven syndrome, because everyone wants that. But surrendering to the Lord for real? I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't need that. I mean, I don't want to disturb my little life. But God requires a repentant heart. Repentance about one's sin against his creator and savior. Isn't that what the second half of Romans chapter 1 is all about? So God looking at the heart requires an honest willingness to turn. And man can't fool God. We'll close with one of the best analogies I've heard about this, which we heard on Sunday from uh, Pastor Francis Chan. Are you asking Jesus to sit in the back seat of your car just in case you need him? Or are you willing to give him the keys, to give it up, so to speak, dropping reliance on self and honestly turning to him for your salvation? This is what we need to be discussing with people. And by the way, this is a great analogy. If the Spirit leads you to use it, use it. There's a great difference, a huge difference between inviting Jesus to sit in your car and handing him over the keys. They're two polar opposite, two totally different things. Handing over the keys and asking the Lord Jesus to drive your car, that's conversion, my friends. That's being born again. It's a surrender of the will to God's will. That's what saving faith looks like because it's accompanied by the attitude of repentance. Are you willing to let Jesus drive and turn your car around if that's what he says is best? But that demands being willing to turn from the direction you were already driving in. And a car can't go in two directions at once, nor can a car have two drivers at once. That's the real decision of salvation. And this is what we need to tell our friends and our loved ones when we get the opportunity. You know, this isn't a religious thing. This is not a mental assent to allow Jesus to participate in your life. This is, are you willing to hand him the keys or not? Because if not, he can't save you. You're unwilling. Again, handing over the keys and asking the Lord Jesus to drive your car, that's conversion or being born again. That's what it looks like. That's what saving faith looks like. Saving faith is always accompanied by a repentant attitude or it can't be consummated by God. It's not going to be faith from God. It's going to be some kind of human substitute faith, some imitation that makes people feel good for a time but they have no roots, like the parable says. And by the way, who's the roots? Jesus, right? Who's the vine? Jesus. There ain't no roots, there ain't no fruit, there ain't no life. So, we'll rest on that, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your patience with us and your Holy Spirit revealing things to us that we don't deserve to know. But we're very grateful as your children for opening our eyes and giving us ears to hear, giving us humility and faith. We ask, Father, that you help us take these truths out in our own souls, help them be part of our convictions and our love for other people. 
and help us share these things from a good heart in all truth and honesty, just as our Lord Jesus Christ did. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.